This is a really strong disclaimer for violence. We've told some dark stories, but this week gets pretty gruesome. It's not blood eagle bad, but it's close. In other words, it's not a great week for kids. This week, on the Myths and Legends podcast, there are vampires and stories from the Middle Ages and some of the most messed up things I've ever had the misfortune of reading. You'll see that vampire fiction might have been one of the first big hits after the proliferation of the printing press. And we'll meet a countess with one weird trick for reducing wrinkles. Peasants hate her. Then, on the Creature of the Week, you'll see a way to save your marriage. By feeding your spouse tar and the moss that you scraped off the chimney. This is the Myths and Legends Podcast, Episode 50, Bad Blood. This is a podcast where I tell stories from folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. This week's episode is brought to you by Stranglers. There's a new and fascinating true crime podcast from Earwolf. It's called Stranglers. Okay, so you've probably heard of the Boston Strangler. 13 gruesome murders happened between 1962 and 64. The city was terrified, and thousands of suspects were questioned, but no one was ever convicted. On this new podcast, you can hear from the victims and the detectives close to the case and the investigators who are still on the job. You'll even hear the voice of an alleged killer whose confession raised more questions than it answered. Subscribe to Stranglers on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. This week, we're talking all about vampires. From the creepy, otherworldly Nosferatu to the suave depictions of Dracula to sparkling in sunlight, the past century has seen some varied depictions of vampires. Despite their popular resurgence, people in nearly every culture have been telling stories of vampires, basically since there were stories. It's always strange when a folk belief like that of vampires transcends culture, geography, and time to be so thoroughly imprinted on the human psyche. Case in point, even if you've never read a vampire story or seen a movie, you probably knew what I meant the instant I said vampire, even if it's just the bare bones of the concept. A human-like creature who drinks the blood of humans to take their life or energy from them. From that basic definition, though, there are many, many different types. Some are humans that come back from the dead to drink the blood of the living. Some are just creatures that drink blood. Some are spirits, some are deities. For the sake of clarity and my sanity, we're going to stick with humans who have died and returned as vampires. Now, Unlike in popular fiction, there are many, many ways you can become a vampire. In Transylvania, a real region in modern Romania, which we'll talk about later, it's said that criminals, bastards, witches, magicians, people excommunicated from the Eastern Orthodox Church, people born with teeth, unbaptized children, and people who have committed suicide can all spontaneously become vampires when they die. And many of these ideas are similar across cultures. For instance, it wasn't until the 1800s that they finally outlawed staking people driving a stake through their heart, who had committed suicide in Britain. In addition, if you suffer an attack from a vampire, you, too, can become a vampire when you die. In the novel Dracula, and in many portrayals of vampires since, it's a complex system in which the vampire drinks a person's blood and, if the vampire wants to turn them, the vampire will compel the human to drink the vampire's blood as well. Otherwise, the person just dies. But there are more fun folklore versions of how to become a vampire. If a cat jumps over a body before it's buried, or a man's shadow falls on a corpse, it might become a vampire. So keep cats, and I guess people too, away from corpses. And mirrors as well. If a dead body is reflected in a mirror, the reflection apparently helps the spirit leave the body, and it might become a vampire. The vampire will awaken, hungry for blood. They can strike people speechless, take beauty or strength, and also take the milk from nursing mothers. If the vampire isn't found and disposed of in a proper way, which we'll talk about in a bit, then the vampire starts killing. 
it will start with all the members of its immediate family, then all the members of its village, then all the animals. When it grows in power, it can climb the belfry of a church and just shout out the names of villagers. If they hear their names, they will instantly die, which, I mean, is just way more efficient than going door to door, I guess. The vampire can never get more than a night away from his or her grave without help, because many can't stand the sun and have to be back by morning. Most will be confined to one spot, unless they can survive for seven years. In that case, the vampire will become human again if he or she travels to another land that speaks a different language. The now former, I guess, vampire can even have children, though the children don't even have a choice. When they die, they will instantly become vampires. Thanks, Dad. Okay, so how do you stop a vampire? Crosses, garlic, holy water, and a stake to the heart are popular solutions, but it's not really that simple. First, garlic is way more important than you've been led to believe. In ancient medieval times, garlic was a sort of white magic. It was believed to have healing properties, and thus automatically countered evil. Vampires were evil, so garlic was an effective way to ward them off. So effective that it must be rubbed everywhere. You should eat garlic, of course, but you should also rub it on windows, keyholes, and door frames to seal your house off from vampires. Further, you have to think about your animals. Once the hungry vampire learns that they can't get into your home, well, they don't have any issue with snacking on the occasional sheep or 12. That's why you need to rub all your farm animals and pets down with garlic as well. With garlic coming out of your pores, rubbed on your walls, doors, windows, and pets, you can finally rest easily, if you can stand the smell. If, like me, you've ever thought about how you would abuse the power of a time machine to become rich, add medieval Transylvanian garlic merchant to your list. Also, if you invite someone over and they seem repulsed by your garlic house, dog, and ice cream, you should definitely suspect that they are a vampire. You can also make crosses from wild roses to keep vampires away. Rose thorns in general seem to help too. Van Helsing, a character in Dracula, recommends using communion wafers to seal different places, given their inherent holiness and the vampire's unholiness. Perhaps my favorite way to repel a vampire is taking a large black dog and painting an extra set of eyes on his forehead. This repulses vampires, and probably non-vampires. Just a word of warning, vampires don't appear to have to be invited in, like in Stephen King's Salem's Lot, which is a really great vampire book. They have absolutely no issue with traveling through an ungarlicked window or door. Apparently though, they are obsessive counters, so if you've seen the X-Files episode where Mulder, in his last moments of consciousness while being attacked by a vampire, flings sunflower seeds around his hotel room, well, that works. They have a compulsion to pick up and count pieces of things, so that's a way to occupy them until morning, when they have to return to their grave. Okay, so you're garlicked up, you have sunflower seeds spread around your house, and thorns wrapped around the door, you're feeling pretty safe. But you still need to find out who the vampire is, and stake them. We'll talk about the staking thing in a bit. In Hungarian folklore, there's a very clear way to know who in the graveyard is a vampire. You just need to have a virgin child ride atop a black or white horse that's also a virgin and who has never stumbled, and lead the pair through the cemetery over all the graves. If it refuses to walk over a grave, get the shovels. Also, if a grave has holes around it large enough for serpents to get in, well, there's probably a vampire and not just a mole problem. What do you do if you know someone's a vampire? Well, first, go in daytime. They are sometimes powerless and weak during the day and hide in their graves, usually sleeping. Then, grab a stake. Usually it's ash wood, but it can also be aspen wood, rosewood, or actually iron. Like many mythological creatures, vampires have a strong aversion to iron as well. Okay, so we've seen movies where a vampire hunter is staking the undead left and right, and they turn to dust or die or whatever, as if the stake contains some supernatural properties. 
well, in the folklore, the stake was mainly used just to hold the vampire in place to keep him in his grave. You just drove a stake into the center mass and then into the ground. Vampires didn't possess super strength, so the stake was pretty effective in pinning it to the ground. You could just wait it out after that, but most chose to hedge their bets and confirm the vampire was gone. They would stuff the corpse's mouth with garlic or a brick, cut off the head and burn everything. And unless you're Koshe the Deathless, there's no coming back from that. Maybe you're burying someone who you think might come back as a vampire, but you don't want to mildly desecrate their corpse by shoving a brick in their mouth. Well, there's a solution for that too. Tie their legs together and slit the bottoms of their feet. So even if they rise, walking will be very painful. Also, people have been known to tie a sickle down right over the neck of the deceased. When the undead springs forth from the grave, well, it's a very short trip. The sickle cuts the head off and the vampire can finally rest. So that's the largely European perspective on vampires. Starting in the 1800s and up through the modern day, they've been the focus of numerous books and movies. One vampire in particular, though, stands head and shoulders above the rest, Dracula. He's not based on any sort of folklore, though. He was the creation of Irish novelist Bram Stoker and based on the 15th century Eastern European prince, also known as Dracula, Vlad Dracula, or in a name that's completely unambiguous regarding how he prefers to spend his free time, Vlad the Impaler, and we'll talk all about him right after this. This week's episode is brought to you by Casper Mattresses. The Casper is an obsessively engineered, made-in-America mattress at a shockingly fair price. Okay, so I've raved about Casper a lot on here. It's a legitimately great mattress, but you know what might be the coolest thing about it? That you can try it for 100 nights risk-free in your own home, and if you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. I was furniture shopping last week, and there were mattresses there that seemed super awkward to try. Not only do you have a salesperson over you like a hawk, but you get to awkwardly lay on the mattress that, best case scenario, a hundred other people have laid on, and from that, get to decide where you're gonna spend a third of your life. Even if it didn't significantly reduce awkward sales interactions, the Casper is still insanely comfortable. It combines springy latex and supportive memory foams to create an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. Time Magazine named it one of the best inventions of 2015, and there's free shipping and returns to the US and Canada. You can get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper.com legends and using offer code legends for, in my opinion, the most comfortable mattress out there. Terms and conditions apply. This week's episode is brought to you by Vistaprint. So the holidays are a busy time, this is not news. With so much going on, it's easy for something like holiday cards to slip through the cracks. It is super easy to make a really nice looking card with Vistaprint. How easy? I'm glad you asked, imaginary audience member. I went to the site with a picture I wanted to use, and I was at checkout with a really nice looking card in under five minutes. I was seeing how fast I could move to make a really stellar card, and I actually got caught up looking at all the cool designs and had a hard time picking, which is a really great problem to have. There are some really professional looking designs on there. Also, for listeners of the show, you can get 50% off holiday cards on Vistaprint. That's 50-5-0. Yeah, all quantities, sizes, styles, and stocks are 50% off, and they include backside designs and envelopes. Satisfaction guaranteed every time, any reason, or they'll make it right. To get 50% off holiday cards, visit vistaprint.com. To create and design your custom holiday cards, enter code MYTHS at checkout. That's MYTHS, M-Y-T-H-S and your savings will be applied automatically. It's that easy. You can go to vistaprint.com and get your holiday shopping done today. All right, now back to the show. 
The torches burned all around, and the 20-year-old Dracula sat cutting his meat, enjoying the ambiance of a dinner in the open air. He had invited his boyars, or the nobles, of the kingdom of Wallachia, his kingdom, to the dinner. They were seated all around the field, and some were less sitting and more so impaled on long spikes around the field. Dracula had just returned from exile and captivity to find that his father, the former chief and prince, had been betrayed and stabbed to death in a swamp, and that his brother had also died under mysterious circumstances. It was partially the machinations of a nearby king who wanted to put his own puppet on the throne, but it was supported by the nobles in Dracula's own land, who were horrified when Dracula came back with the Turkish army and took his throne. Dracula wasted no time in having them rounded up and indiscriminately impaled. He then invited slash forced the remaining nobles to sit down for a dinner, where he pretended like men weren't groaning, screaming, and slowly dying all around them. With the smell of coagulating blood all around them, one noble could not help it. He gagged and threw up in his mouth. His hand went to his face. The other nobles at the table looked away as Dracula zeroed in. He apologized to the man and laughed. Of course, he wouldn't expect the men to eat under such conditions, near such smells. This was barbaric. There was a much better spot everyone could go to, above the corpses. Dracula motioned to his warriors to come and escort this poor, sick young noble away from the smell. Ten minutes later, the noble was impaled on the highest spike, above all the corpses, and despite him being above the smell, none of the other nobles wished to join him. The story of the real Vlad Dracula is a complex one. We won't be going over all of it, but I will give the larger picture. Before we move on to an extremely brief overview of the politics of 15th century Europe, I should note that Dracula wasn't a vampire. Not even a little. He had an affinity for violent deaths, but the vampire thing was added much later. During Vlad's rule, the Holy Roman Empire was in full swing in Europe. Okay, so we've talked about the Roman Empire, but we haven't talked a lot about the divisions. Before the Western Empire fell, it broke apart, with one emperor ruling from Italy in the West and another from Constantinople in the East. Due to many different reasons, the West fell, but the East chugged on for another 1,000-ish years. In an attempt to revive the Western Empire, Pope Leo III crowned Charlemagne as the Holy Roman Emperor a few hundred years after the Western Empire's collapse. A lot of stuff happened, and then about 500 years after that, the Holy Roman Empire was a power in the West. In the East, the Byzantine Empire, or the eastern half of the Roman Empire, thrived for years. But it, too, came into conflict with its neighbors, this time the Ottoman Turks. In 1453, Constantinople fell, marking, finally, the end of Rome. The fall of Constantinople happened right in the middle of one of Dracula's reigns. His kingdom wasn't actually Transylvania, but the neighboring kingdom of Wallachia, he was actually pretty soundly reviled in Transylvania. One of the biggest issues in Dracula's life was dealing with the Turks, but the fun doesn't stop there. For example, there were many, many different political affiliations, and they seemed to shift constantly. There was his disdain for the Holy Roman Empire in Western Europe, but there was also his Cold War with the Kingdom of Hungary. In addition to that, there was Transylvania, under the control of Hungary, and others, then, further south, there was the Second Bulgarian Empire, and then there was the Ottoman Turks, who had just conquered the Byzantine Empire and had an eye for Eastern Europe. I hope you stayed awake through all that, because it actually really does matter. The story of Dracula starts not with Dracula, but his father, Vlad Dracul, which I'll henceforth be referring to as Dad Vlad. Dad Vlad was the ruler of Wallachia, and he was considered instrumental in the fight against the Turks. So he was inducted into the Order of the Dragon, 
which, like the Order of St. George and other military orders of the Crusades, required its members to fight those they perceived to be enemies of Christianity, the Ottoman Turks being pretty high on that list for them. Dad Vlad returned home and showed off his new allegiance, and Dragon became part of his name. Dragon, in Romanian, is Dracul. And if you're wondering, Dracula means son of the dragon. I actually find it deeply ironic that a character who's known for being repelled by crosses and burned with communion wafers gets his name from a medieval military order that gave itself the task of defending Christianity. Anyway, Dad Vlad was not an idealistic ruler, and when the Ottomans began pressing him from the south and the Kingdom of Hungary and the Holy Roman Empire couldn't come to his aid, Dad Vlad started talks with the Sultan, until the Sultan invited the prince and his sons, Vlad Dracula and Radu the Handsome, to his court. And yeah, Dracula's brother was called Radu the Handsome. Vlad got the short end of the stick on that one. In the court of the Sultan, they were taken captive almost immediately, and Dad Vlad was sent back. Vlad and Radu were made to stay in captivity, hostages to ensure Dad Vlad's loyalty. As it turned out, it wasn't the Turks Dad Vlad had to worry about. Time wore on, and he found himself having to help the Hungarians in their fight against the Ottomans. He actually thought he was sacrificing his children for the peace. But they learned that he was trying to play both sides, and Dad Vlad was betrayed by his nobles and stabbed to death in a swamp with the approval of the King of Hungary. The Ottomans immediately saw what they could do. They had Vlad Dracula and Radu the Handsome, legitimate claimants to the Wallachian throne. Dracula was given an army, and he marched on Wallachia and retook his homeland for about two months. Then the Hungarians fought back and drove him into exile. He went back to the Turks. Really long story short, he lived in exile for about eight years, drifting between the Ottoman Empire and the Kingdom of Hungary until a spot opened up for him. It was actually the Hungarian king that helped him back to power, but we won't go into that. So Vlad Dracula would come to be known as Vlad the Impaler, but that wasn't during his lifetime, only much later. And I bet you can guess why. He liked to treat himself to mass impalings. For those of you that don't know, impaling someone is essentially putting a sharp stick through their body. And we won't go through all the incredibly messed up and creative ways that Vlad tried to do that. He liked to prolong the agony though, and he would find ways to carefully run the person through so as to miss vital organs, letting them hang out for days. Vlad was a messed up guy and really liked to drive his point home, pun sickeningly intended. Most of the focuses of his punishment were people that he saw as enemies of Wallachia, the area he ruled, so Turks and Hungarians definitely, but also the boyars, or the nobles, that had betrayed his father and brother and supported whoever they thought would give them power. In addition, he wanted to exert his influence over the Transylvanian Saxons, Transylvania being largely under the influence of the King of Hungary. This would be his historical undoing. Vlad was a self-professed Christian of the Eastern Orthodox Church. It was believed that Vlad, despite his actions, harbored a deep fear about the state of his eternal soul. In his life, he's actually credited with building several Orthodox monasteries. Well, one time when visiting a Roman Catholic monastery, he had a discussion with a monk. The monk's name was Brother Hans, and when Dracula asked him what would be Dracula's fate after death, Brother Hans, who knew of Dracula's bloody exploits, thoroughly disapproved and wasn't afraid to speak the truth to incredibly vengeful and bloodthirsty power. He had some things to say. He told Dracula that, and I quote, Great pain and suffering and pitiful tears will never end for you since you, demented tyrant, have spilled and spread so much innocent blood. It is even conceivable that the devil himself would not want you, but if he should, you will be confined to hell for eternity. Then, with a pause, he told Dracula that you are a wicked, shrewd, merciless killer. What are the crimes that justify killing of pregnant women and what have their little children done, whose lives you've snuffed out? 
you've impaled those who never did any harm to you. I am amazed at your murderous hatred. Finishing up, he said, you mad tyrant, do you really think that you'll be able to live eternally? Because of the blood you have spilled on this earth, all will rise before God and his kingdom demanding vengeance. You foolish madman and senseless unhearing tyrant, your whole being belongs in hell. This hit a nerve, and Dracula hit the monk. Those outside the room could only listen in horror, as Vlad killed the monk with his bare hands. Vlad had the man hoisted up by his feet on a pole out in front of the monastery. He also had the man's donkey impaled, because I guess he had to impale something. The monks took the hint and fled immediately to nearby Transylvania. Dracula was fine with this. He had made a habit of confiscating Roman Catholic churches and monasteries and all of their funds. Well, the issue was that the monks could write. This wouldn't have been particularly bad. I mean, monks would have sent a few letters and told a few stories, but the stories probably would have remained among a select group of people. It was work to write something, and way more work to mass-produce something. It wasn't like there was a machine rising to prominence in Western Europe to make printing text extremely cheap and easy. Except that, coincidentally, right before Vlad came to power, a machine came to Europe that made printing text extremely cheap and easy. The printing press was invented around 1440, and it was bad news for Vlad's PR. The stories of Vlad were compelling and bizarre and scary, and these pseudo-histories were perfect for medieval readers, and historians think that they were some of the first non-religious bestsellers. Some subtle titles include the frightening and truly extraordinary story of the wicked and bloodthirsty tyrant called Prince Dracula, and story of a bloodthirsty madman called Dracula of Wallachia. They were widely read in Europe, and the Pope condemned Dracula's bloody excesses. The new Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick III, loved the pamphlets and read them to his dinner guests. We should talk about Dracula's very obvious tendency toward extreme violence. And yeah, even though the pamphlets were composed by people who largely disliked him, or were just trying to put together the best story, a lot of official documents corroborate the stories, and we can safely assume that he did a lot of impaling. Vlad was a pretty bad guy. Even though he only ruled for roughly seven years in three different reigns, he's credited with killing hundreds of thousands of people in creative and gruesome ways. He killed real and perceived enemies, of course, but there are also things that are truly heinous, like impaling the elderly, sick, and people with disabilities because he saw them as a drain on the state. In addition, he disliked the German-speaking Saxons that had immigrated from further north. He saw no problem with luring them to meetings, barring the door, and burning down the building. Some of his killings he justified with sort of a nationalistic rationale. He was protecting the kingdom from its enemies, not just in neighboring principalities, but from enemies within, too. He had to make Wallachia strong and safe for him and his people. So that, of course, involved violently executing hundreds of thousands. Never mind that it also included revenge killings, political executions, and anyone who intentionally or accidentally insulted him. There are still Romanian folk songs out there praising him as a strong leader in a turbulent time, but even they recognize his monstrous actions and body count. He, unsurprisingly, became convinced that his capital was not safe. And this was around the time that he learned the manner of his brother's death years prior. The nobles had buried him alive. And Dracula just learned who those nobles were. He held a magnificent festival on Easter Day in the capital, where everyone could come and have a good time. Nothing suspicious about that. Well, when everyone was there and a few drinks in, Dracula's warriors flooded the festival and rounded up the nobles that Dracula suspected of plotting against him. The nobles, for their part, cursed his sudden but inevitable betrayal. The old and infirm were killed outright. The others were put in chains and marched into the mountains, still wearing their Easter finery. 
They reached the ruins of a castle, and Dracula informed them that they would be rebuilding it. Starting now, I imagine that it was a slow start, but the nobles would get the hang of it. Or die. Dracula didn't really care. In the end, their silk clothes were in shambles and falling apart, but Dracula had his retreat away from the capital. It was called Castle Dracula, and it was high up in the mountains by the Transylvanian border. He would end up meeting the retreat sooner than he thought, too, because he went to war with the Turks shortly thereafter. The Turks invaded Wallachia, Dracula's kingdom, and though the Turks had greater numbers, Dracula could not have made it more difficult. He called the citizens to him, and then he poisoned the wells, burned the villages, and killed the livestock that couldn't be led away to safety in the mountains. He released hardened criminals from the dungeons and set them loose in the night on the Turks. He diverted rivers to make swampy marshlands. People suffering from diseases were disguised and sent into camps to come in contact with as many people as they could before they were discovered. And Dracula used guerrilla tactics and terrorized the invaders. Finally, the tired, hungry, and sick Turkish troops made their way to the capital, but were surprised by a forest that they hadn't been expecting. It was a forest of impaled corpses. The prisoners of war that Dracula had taken were there, in addition to others that Dracula had seen as enemies. Nearly 20,000 men, women, and children arranged outside the capital. The capital, too, had been abandoned and stripped of any loot. The sultan, profoundly disgusted and demoralized, turned around. He left part of an army there, though, to dig through the mountains and find Dracula. He left someone who knew the area, too, Radu the Handsome, Dracula's brother, who commanded the Turkish troops to go after him. Eventually, they caught up with him, hiding at Castle Dracula. Dracula escaped in the night down a hidden stairwell that went straight into the mountains. Farmers led him across the border into Transylvania to ask the Hungarian king for help against the Turks. The king said he would absolutely give Dracula the warriors to fight the Turks, and Dracula turned right around and started back across the mountains. They came to a part where everyone had to be lowered down into a valley, and Dracula supervised the operation until he was the last one left on the top of the cliff. Then, the Hungarian warriors turned on him, dragging him back to the king. They finally had Dracula captive. Dracula spent 14 years under house arrest, but remember how I said the politics were confusing, contradictory, and constantly shifting? Well, in the end, Dracula married the Hungarian king's daughter and converted to Roman Catholicism. The king, above all else, was a pragmatist, and Dracula too. If the king put Dracula back on the throne of Wallachia, he'd have a nice buffer against the Turks, and Dracula would not be in prison anymore. So, win-win. A couple years later, the Hungarian king ousted Radu the Handsome, Dracula's brother, and restored Dracula to his throne. That third and final reign lasted a couple years, until another battle with the Turks. Prince Dracula rode down to enjoy the slaughter, and people maintained that his own warriors did not recognize him, thought he was a Turkish warrior, and killed him. Knowing what we know of Wallachian politics, it might not have been that simple. Regardless, his forces were overrun, and his head was taken back to Constantinople, to the Sultan, and it was put on display to prove that Dracula, the Impaler, would not be coming back. So, as you can see, Dracula, or Vlad the Impaler, not only died, but his enemies had incontrovertible proof of his death. Also, he wasn't a vampire. Not even close. He wasn't considered a vampire in his time, and as far as I can tell, 
the people of Romania have never considered him to be a vampire, despite his bloodlust and dining among corpses getting him uncomfortably close. Why, then, is he considered to be the most famous vampire of all time? Well, it's actually kind of straightforward and boring. The author Bram Stoker. The Irish author of Dracula was not the first person to write a vampire novel. A lot of people tried their hand at it in the 1800s, but none saw quite the success of Stoker's Dracula. He researched the novel for years before writing it, and he had the idea mapped out when he learned of Vlad the Impaler, called Dracula, near Transylvania, a name that literally means land beyond the trees. Both were sufficiently mysterious sounding enough to be a good home for his vampire count. Dracul has the double meaning of dragon and devil in Romanian, and that, combined with the fact that he was a bloodthirsty tyrant, probably made him the perfect model for the fictional count. And it's a really good thing Stoker found the name. The name of the count before he found Vlad? Count Wampir, which is basically Count Vampire. The original name of the novel was The Dead Undead. So I know I have no room to talk. My only crack at a title is The Myths and Legends Podcast, so I can't be too hard on uncreative titles, but still, I'm really glad he found Dracula. If you haven't read the book, it's really good, and I won't talk about it that much because I don't want to spoil it for anybody who hasn't read it. If you have an e-reader or smartphone, the original English version is out of copyright, and you can find it online for free. I linked it in the show notes. Dracula follows a lot of vampire rules. He's weakened by sunlight, he has to sleep in his native soil, he's repelled by a crucifix and other things considered to be holy, he can transform into a bat or a wolf, he can't be reflected in a mirror, he can crawl down walls, dominate people and bend them to his will, and he can turn into a mist. All these things are, you know, scary, but I still think I would take crossing him over the real Dracula any day of the week. Also, I think the ultimate lesson we can learn from this is that if you're an aspiring novelist, be careful about which names you choose for your characters. You might just be turning a little-known medieval ruler into a mythological monster known all around the world. That being said, it was probably a net gain for Vlad the Impaler's historical image, because between the fictional Dracula and Vlad the Impaler, one person was a vicious monster who had a compulsion to slake his ever-growing thirst for blood, and the other was a fictional vampire. In my mind, you can't talk about vampires, Transylvania, and Dracula without talking about one ruler in particular, Elizabeth Bottery. Stoker's notes indicated that he read stories of the woman known as the Blood Countess, but we really don't know how much of an influence she had on his work. She is, apparently, the most prolific female murderer of all time, with some sources putting her body count at 650. What's truly chilling, though, is that she probably would have gotten away with it, too, if she hadn't started murdering the wrong people. Her family ruled Transylvania, and she married a Hungarian noble. This was roughly 100 years after Dracula, but they were still fighting the Turks. He would be gone on long expeditions, but when he came home, they would catch up, have a nice date night, and torture Turkish captives. One of the later torture techniques they used was to put oiled strips of paper between the captives' toes and light them on fire. This was called star kicking, and the couple would laugh as the captive kicked to try to put out the fire. She did some seriously messed up stuff, and I really don't even want to repeat it. It's generally accepted that she was a sadist, someone who takes pleasure in someone else's pain. Her victims, in the beginning, were nearly all peasant girls, lured from the villages to the castle with promises of work. I detailed all of her torture techniques on MythPodcast.com. Seriously, it is really dark stuff. The problem came when she tired of torturing and murdering peasant girls, and moved on to the daughters of nobles. We have reliable accounts of her bathing in the blood of beautiful young noble girls, believing that that kept her young. 
Sometimes, if she was ill, a girl would be led unwittingly to her dark room. The door shut behind her. Botry would then attack the girl with her teeth. It got bad. I mean, if that's not bad enough. So bad that they ran out of places to put all the bodies. And servants started just shoving them under beds and throwing them out of windows. The castle began to smell horrible. Botry was really rich, and the Hungarian king owed her a lot of money. That, combined with reports of her murdering the daughters of nobles and bathing in their blood, was enough to lead the king to bring her to trial. Yeah, it wasn't the open secret of hundreds of peasant women disappearing, but the rumors of murders of noble women, and, oh yeah, I owe her a ton of money, so let's get her thrown in jail, so I don't have to pay. That finally led to her somewhat downfall. I say somewhat, because she had friends in high places. A count friend of her family learned of the king's actions and preempted him, raiding the castle and bringing Beautry and her accomplices up on charges. He controlled the trial, and the accomplices had the terrifying punishment of having their fingers torn off and then being thrown into a fire. Yeah, they did not mess around during the Middle Ages. The Blood Countess was sentenced to a prison cell without windows where she lived for five years until her death. Her family kept its wealth and the nobles tried to cover up the whole thing, it being a blot on the honor of the nobility. History won when the trial documents, kept in secret archives, were discovered years later. It's difficult to wrap up an episode this broad. Stories of vampires will continue to exist probably as long as there are stories. I find it interesting how the vampire has moved from a monstrous, unholy other to a sparkly anti-hero. It's tough, for me at least, to say what vampires represent, since they've appeared in so many different cultures and time periods. They're kind of the embodiment of superstition to me. They are our confusion about death, dying, and what comes next all wrapped into one form. Also, aside from later rules about being bitten and what the fictional Dracula calls the baptism of blood, which that sounds like a great name for a metal band, the way people could become vampires in the Middle Ages were, well, as we saw, very confusing. You could live a good, pious life and maybe still come back as a vampire if you happen to be born with teeth. Vampirism, it seems, kind of represents our confusions and anxieties, not only of what comes after death, but of what it means to live a good life here on Earth. That, and it's a really great excuse to paint an extra set of eyes on your dog's head, which I can't decide if that would be terrifying or hilarious. That's it for this week. Next week, we're back in Norse mythology with a few stories on Loki. I'll rescind my ban on accepting produce from strangers, and we'll tell the story of Balder and the binding of Loki in more detail. That, of course, is the prelude to Ragnarok, or the end of the worlds. Okay, so I have really cool news. That show I mentioned last week, and a few times over the past several months, is now finally live. Yesterday, two episodes dropped on our newest podcast, called Career Day. My wife is the host and producer, and she's interviewed close to 100 people from all around the world about their jobs and the stories of how they got there. It's well-edited and fast-paced, and not only will you learn stuff, but you'll get really into the stories. I've described it as dirty jobs, without the dirt, meets this American life. If you like weird and interesting details wrapped in really human stories, like I try to do on this podcast, check it out. You can find it on iTunes at itunes.careerdayshow.com, or just search for Career Day wherever you get your podcasts. There are links in the show notes, and if you like it, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. It is so incredibly helpful for a show's performance in the charts. Once again, the show is Career Day, and you can find it on iTunes at itunes.careerdayshow.com. Thank you so much.
The creature this week is the Skogsra from Swedish folklore. They are women and they are beautiful wood nymphs with a siren-like voice. Siren like the creature from Greek mythology, not siren like the modern police sirens. That would be counterproductive because they like to lure men into the forest and keep them forever. If you're into fox tales and, I quote, backs as hollow as an old oak tree, then you're in luck because the Skogsron have both of those. They don't really care what you're into though because if you're in the forest and male, they will have some degree of control over you and any man that spends the evening with the Skogsra will lose his immortal soul. In addition to trapping and keeping men, they do other run-of-the-mill forest creature stuff, like give people bad hunting trips, get people lost, steal cattle and sheep, but they also do two not-so-normal things, like giving men inappropriate dreams and tricking and marrying Christians. The men seem to always make it out alive in the stories. One wife followed her husband into the woods to see him under the control of the Skogsra, she learned that no force on earth could keep the man from visiting the creature nightly. One day, the wife went into the forest, didn't reveal her identity, introduced herself to the Skogsra, and asked for an herbal remedy. She said that she had this bull who constantly left the barn every night. It was not a bright bull. It shouldn't have been in the forest to begin with, but hey, here we are. Did the Skogsra have any magical way to keep this bull from leaving? The Skogsra said, absolutely and told the woman that if she gave the bull a concoction with a combination of garlic, tar, and the moss that grows on the north side of a chimney, then he would have no desire to ever leave again. The woman made the mixture and fed it to her way too trusting husband. The man lost all desire to go visit the Skogsra that night, and probably threw up a lot from the grass, garlic, and tar. One final story involves a man who was really tired of the nightly visits. He was a hunter who bragged to the Skogdra about being able to shoot anything in the forest except one thing. It's not specified what it is. She gave him a recipe for special gunpowder where, if he used it, he would be able to kill any creature he wanted. He returned the next night with the gun and the gunpowder. Now, was that any creature I wanted to kill? She took the hint and the hunter never saw her again. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. Other music is by Pottington Bear and Blue Dot Sessions. Links to still more music are in the show notes. And once again, it's launch week for our other podcast, Career Day. You can find it on iTunes at itunes.careerdayshow.com, or just search for Career Day wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.